the thing that really bothers me, we have no explanation of any kind of strategy of what the president, what this administration is thinking about in terms of our overall national security strategy. I mean, I try to follow this fairly carefully, but in most regions, we do not know what the overall plan of the Trump administration is. That was former Secretary of State and all-around rock star Madeleine Albright on CNN, who was sharing her concerns that President Trump at the time had not shared what his plans were to secure America. Well, Secretary Albright, if you are listening, it is here. The president's plans are here. So everyone listening, if you are not a close follower of the national security strategy like Secretary Albright, you will be by the end of this show. We're going to talk all about it here on the next episode of What in the World. Now stay tuned. You are listening to What in the World right here on WERA 96.7 FM and streaming online at WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumi Akinasotu. A happy, happy new year to all of you listening. I hope you had a restful holiday break and that your new year is off to a great start. It's great to be back um, to talk with you all and break down what's happening in the world of foreign policy without making your head hurt and to hopefully find some meaning for it in your everyday life. Um, Every new year, we all make plans to lose weight, to travel more, maybe to find a date. Well, President Trump released his plan for protecting Americans at home and abroad. And um, I have to say, he had some choice words for those uh, who want to come at the United States some kind of way or want to uh, put the United States in a compromising position. And as I was reading the document, I'm not sure if anybody else was reading it, but as I was reading, I couldn't help but think of one of uh, my favorite rap songs called uh, Knock If You Buck by Crime Mob. It's basically slang for get ready to fight. Fortunately, what in the world is not the Jerry Springer show, and we're not going to fighting anyone here. We're going to be talking with Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins about what's in the national security strategy, explain what it could mean for Americans. And both of us are going to try to convince you to read it. It's only 68 pages. Um, If you've read it, you get a cookie. Uh, If you haven't, I'm judging you. But uh, take a second, search for the 2018 National Security Strategy online and, and just, you know, take a quick scan through it. So let's jump right in by getting to know our expert for today, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins. Um, Ambassador Jenkins is the founder and president of Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, or WCAPS. But prior to that, Ambassador Jenkins was nominated by President Barack Obama and confirmed by the U.S. Senate to be the Department of State's coordinator for threat reduction programs. She was also the U.S. representative to the Global Partnership Against the Spread of Weapons and Materials of Mass Destruction. She's been engaged on global health security initiatives that reduce the threat and spread of infectious diseases around the world. Ambassador Jenkins was a program officer at the Ford Foundation and was a reservist for 22 years in the U.S. Navy and the Air Force. And if you need more convincing about how cool she is, Ambassador Jenkins hails from the great borough of Queens in New York City. Uh, one of my favorite rappers, uh, Nas, uh, the home of, his, the home of, of Nasir Jones. Um, only someone from Queens uh, can uh, get the world to act right around some very serious issues like, like weapons of mass destruction and nuclear security. I'm so glad you're here. Ambassador Jenkins, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. And and I want to say that I was actually born in Queens and I actually grew up in the Bronx. So I have two, hey two boroughs in New York to, that I hail from. I'm not so. messing with you. <laughs> I'm not messing with you people in the Bronx. I used to live in the Bronx. Okay. It makes you nice and tough. Um, no wonder you're dealing with issues of weapons of mass destruction <laughs> and national security. It's a, it's a tough, a tough borough. Um, but we're glad to have you here. Um, let's let's talk about how you got to the world of foreign policy. What in your professional or personal life brought you to this to this space? How did you go from Queens or from the Bronx to to being um, an ambassador? Well, thank you. Um, it's great to be uh, doing this and to be part of this program. I want to uh, congratulate you for doing these podcasts. I think they're very important. Um, and so it's really, uh, really a pleasure for me to be here. Um, my path from from the Bronx and Queens to being an ambassador, I guess, is is a circuitous one, and I won't go through all the different things that have that I've I've gone through. Um, suffice it to say that um, I started out always being a person that 
really enjoyed and loved education and loved being in school. I loved to learn, which is uh, something that kept me going back. Um, and um, I was fortunate enough to um, get a scholarship to go to a really good high school in, in New York City. And private high school, I think that helped to propel me uh, in my life to um, continue to pursue education uh, the way I have. But I, you know, I also uh, was very interested in working for the government from the very beginning. Um, not sure very early which part of the government I would work in, but I started uh, when I was young, uh, during my summers, I would work in, in high school and in college working in New York City government offices. And then when I went to law school and for my first master's, I went up to Albany in New York because I wanted to work in state government. And then, and then ultimately, I came to Washington, D.C. In foreign policy, it really started with my engagement in the issues of weapons of mass destruction, where I started working for an agency that doesn't exist anymore called the Arms Control Disarmament Agency, where that agency really focused on the negotiation um, of arms control disarmament uh, and nonproliferation treaties. That was the focus of the of what they did, and I joined as as a lawyer. So I worked in the legal office, and I was the ambassador for I was I was the legal advisor for the ambassador and delegations, working on all types of treaties, whether it's nuclear, chemical, biological weapons issues. And after working on those issues in the legal side, I realized how much of policy was. Uh, uh, part of what I was doing, you know, in terms of advising about what kind of policies the U.S. should take and um, what was legal and not legal. And so that led me to be interested on the policy side as well. Mm-hmm. So I went back to school and got a, a Ph.D. in international relations and, and comparative relations. And um, as a result of that, I started to work more on the policy side than on the legal side. And uh, after I went to uh, the Ford Foundation, I was there for about four years, and then I was asked to join the uh, Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And so that's it, a very short and dirty. <laughs> but a lot, there's a lot of things. I'm sure there's there, a right? lot in there. I'm sure <laughs> there's a lot. Thing. But I'm Quick really, review. I'm really intrigued just about your background. You know, coming from you know the the borough of the Bronx, um, where there it's not like you know it's the the what you think of when you think of like sort of uh, global engagement or you know certainly there's great institutions like the Fordham University is there. But was there anything in your personal life, like are your family members, military background, or, you know, did you travel a lot when you were a kid? Or Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, I joined the, the Air Force Reserves and, and moved over to the Navy, but I didn't have any family members who were in the military at that time. My sister eventually joined the Air Force as a nurse and stayed there for a few years. But for me, I really just wanted to see what it was like, to, mm. to see what the challenge was about. Um, and a lot of the reasons why I got into particularly my area of weapons of mass destruction was, it was it's partly by accident because I, I was already situated in the right spot. As I mentioned, I um, left Albany and went to the federal government. One of my mentors was attending a meeting, an interagency meeting, which is a meeting with different departments of the U.S. government, to discuss the instructions that we would send an ambassador and his delegation overseas who were negotiating a treaty an arms control treaty, and I found that to be so fascinating. And Mm -hmm. I was only at that meeting because I didn't have a lot to do that day. (laughs) And so that particular day, I asked my mentor if I could go with him to the meeting. I had no idea what they were going to discuss. And when I was there, I got so fascinated by the issue of arms control and strategic weapons and nuclear weapons and issues like that. I had had no idea. I was not thinking about that as much. And as a result of that, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And so you talked a little bit about mentorship in that experience and what it did for your interest in weapons of mass destruction. You are now the founder and president of a newly launched organization around the idea of mentorship and and um, peace and security. So the women uh, of color advancing peace and security. Tell us what that is about. Why did you launch it and what are you hoping to do with it? It's an organization and an idea, actually, that I had wanted to launch for a while because really in my area of what they call hard security, which is weapons of mass destruction, I really could count on almost one hand the women of color, particularly African-American women who I've worked with in you know, 25 years or so in this area. It just amazed me that there's so few professional women of color 
who I encountered from the U.S. Um, and not that much from other countries as well, particularly, um, you know, a lot of countries who I worked with. Um, and so I really wanted to do something about that because, you know, I'm saying, well, I'm not, I'm going to retire at some point and mm-hmm. I look behind me and I don't see anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I knew for myself, I got into this field by accident. So it's not as if somebody was telling me you need to get into this field. Mm-hmm. And while I understand that there's other areas of work that are much closer to issues that people of color care about, um, there are also issues like these that need our perspective and need the voices and views of people of color and particularly women of color, uh, which particularly when you bring in issues of peace and security broader than the hard security area because so many of these issues, whether you're dealing with health, you know, international infectious disease, food security, water security, peacekeeping, women of color are often the most impacted. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't see women of color at the tables, uh, in the policy discussions, academic uh, environment, you know, academic uh, conferences, you don't see as many of us there. And while we are around, um, we don't have a network. There is no way to really connect amongst each other. So what I wanted to do was to develop a network of women of color who work in the areas of peace, security, and conflict. Um, and, you know, get a sense of who's doing what in the field to um, find ways to amplify the voices of women who are in the field, to find ways in which when women are out there writing about these issues, that we can find a way to keep amplifying those voices, Mm -hmm. to be a resource so that when we need to have or any organization wants to have a woman of color speaking on any issue, whether it's immigration, you know, or sustainable development goals as as they relate to peace and security, that there is a place that we can find those women and say they do exist and Mm -hmm. we will help you to locate them so that you will have panels and papers that have the important perspective of women who are in the field and to help ensure that the goals that organizations and governments want to achieve can be achieved because you have the perspective of people who will be most affected by that. Right. Um, Also to have a mentorship program, as you mentioned. I think it's important to continue to mentor uh, young women um, uh, throughout their career to bring more women of color into the field. So we have a Young Ambassadors Program as well that we're develop, developing. Um, and also one thing I'm doing which is different is to look at how art is, look at women of color who are doing art uh, and how that how their art reflects issues of peace and security. We need to get the word out there mm-hmm. uh, just to make sure that people know that they can do these things. So what I want to do is make sure that they become members of the organization because I do want to develop um, ways in which women in the organization can start to have discussions amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. I would just ask, uh, you know, really uh, to go to the website, WCAPS, WCAPS.org. Uh, for anyone interested, anyone wants to help develop the organization and just go to the page on membership and join. And- yeah. And two quick things that you didn't mention. One, it's free to join. It's free to join. And, and two, anybody can join. Anyone can join. You don't so have necessarily everybody. have to identify as a woman of color. If you support the issues just in general and think that maybe your company or your organization or you yourself might be a value um, to the group, you can be a member so exactly. anybody can 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 join it's open to anyone so let's let's get into the nitty-gritty of why we're we're here a lot of people are wondering what this national security strategy is all about so let's go back in time as we usually do with this show so once upon a time a uh, little more than 30 years ago congress passed the goldwater nichols department of defense reorganization act of 1986 uh, but president reagan signed it on october 1st and it was widely received as the largest reorganization of the Department of Defense since 1947, uh, when the agency, when the Department of Defense was created. A subset of the legislation, Section 603, for the the, uh, legislation nerds out there, but Section 603, if you scroll down to the very end, um, it states that the president shall transmit to Congress each year a comprehensive report on the national security strategy of the United States that shall be transmitted on the date on which the president submits to Congress the budget for the next fiscal year. So December 18th um, of 2017, uh, President Trump released his national security strategy. Um, But the document, the legislation goes on to say what exactly should be in in the national security strategy Um, But before we get into that, Ambassador Jenkins, uh, for those of us who are not familiar with military command structures, you were both a reserve, you were a reservist 
in both the Navy and the Air Force. So can you share why uh, sort of what the structure is of the of the command for the military um, with all of the different um, various arms of the military. We've got the Navy, we've got the Air Force, we have the, this group called the Joint Chiefs of Staffs, which a lot of people may not know exactly what they do. So give us just sort of a high level overview of the structure of the military so people understand what this section of the legislation was talking about. Okay, great. And, I, and I'll do the first let me say a little bit more about the actual strategy itself. It really outlines the foreign policy, the worldwide commitments and the national defense capabilities of the United States that are necessary to, in the view of the U.S., deter aggression and implement uh, the strategy of the U.S. So it serves as a basis for crafting the, the policies and the strategies that flow actually from it. So it has an important trickle-down effect in terms of how the U.S. government, particularly the military, is going to plan and budget for the, for the following year. Uh, the Gold and Nichols Act also directs the Secretary of Defense to include in his R- annual report to Congress the National Defense Strategy, mm-hmm. uh, NDS. And the NDS is a description of the major military missions and of the military force structure of the U.S. for the next fiscal year. It's also an explanation of the relationship of those military missions to that force structure. And third, it's a, it's a justification really for those military missions in that force structure. So by military missions, uh, we're saying uh, this isn't like saying we plan on going to war. This is just saying these are the existing um, overall missions of the of yeah. the of the Department of Defense. What are we doing abroad based in on, Afghanistan or in Somalia or whatever? Right, and it's all based on the national uh, the national security. Strategy. So the okay, so the the national the, the Department of Defense takes their their lead from the national security strategy. Right. What happens is that the national defense strategy is then turned. It helps with the national military strategy which is actually something that's issued and signed by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And the Joint Chief of Staffs is obviously the heads of the different departments, you know, the um, military structures, the Air Force, Navy, Marines, Army. Um, and so what they're doing is they're developing a strategy that's also that's also looks at the NSS in terms of what it does. So okay. in other words, what I'm showing is that the National Security Strategy, NSS, really is directing what DOD is doing, Department of Defense, the Secretary of Department of Defense, as well as the Joint Chief of Staff. Who are the heads of the, the, the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, and the Marine Corps. Right. In addition, uh, it also helps to promote and uh, with the, something called the Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution System, which is PP, PPBE. Um, if anyone wants more information, you can just Google it because there's tons <laughs> of information on it. But the PPBE process is Department of Defense internal methodology to allocate resources to provide capabilities that are deemed necessary to accomplish. So this is where you have the, have the DOD actually figuring out how it's going to allocate resources to actually do the things that the government has said needs to be done. This is money. This is um, personnel or staff, human capacities to resources to Mm -hmm. to get things done. Okay. Right. So in other words, the national security strategy is important because it helps to direct how all these things are going to happen. You know, and it has a trickle down effect on all these other ways in which the Department of Defense and Joint Chief of Staff are going to be structuring and allocating resources based on what's put in the national security strategy. And so how much of this would you say, like when the rubber meets the road, how much of the stuff that's in the national security strategy actually comes to fruition like actually happens my I mean my feeling is is like in life things happen you plan for things something comes in and you've got to you know adjust so it the 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 strategy is not like a legal document it's not a legally binding document it's it's sort of it's a strategy so how much of this um I don't know historically has has sort of changed once you know the president's staff meets with you know the Marine Corps or whoever it is to talk right. to them what's going um, on. Well, obviously, first of all, you need a strategy. You need a strategy to actually set forth what it is that you want to do and why you want to do it, mm-hmm. and uh, the rationale for the activities that you want that are going to be uh, accomplished and and strategized. Um, based on the, the NSS and the strategy. So you need a strategy. But as you said, you know, things happen. <laughs> so 
the goal, of course, is to do everything that's in the strategy. That's always a goal. So that's you want to stick with the strategy. However things happen, for example, if there's budgeting issues, you're going to have Congress involved. You have to you have to you know, make the case to Congress to give you the funding that you need to do the things that are set up in the strategy. Theoretically, Congress will try to do that, but things can happen. Right. Other emergencies can come along, and that may have to adjust the strategy based on something that was not anticipated. Right. And if you read the strategy itself, there are things that are set forth in there that obviously um, you, you can't anticipate everything. Right. So there are strategies that are are set forth, but with an understanding that you may not be able to anticipate if there's um, a terrorist attack someplace. And therefore, things will have to adjust. In addition, the budgeting will have to adjust. Mm-hmm. So the strategy is a strategy that is needed because you need to outline what your goals mm-hmm. are. Right. And, you know, this is certainly a, a document released by the by the American administration or the American president, but I suspect other countries are looking at it as well. What sort of um, response or what sort of actions do other countries um, take when it comes to the national security strategy? I mean, like if you're for certain like China, which we'll get to in a second, or North Korea, your name is all throughout this thing. So um, what what sort of tone um, or what sort of signal does the national security strategy send to other countries? Well, the other country will certainly look at it because it is an indication, um, at least the best one of the best indications that you can have that's written out that actually sets forth what the U.S. believes some of the threats are that exist and therefore how the U.S. will try to address those threats. So countries will naturally be uh, uh, look at it uh, and want to see what is it that the U.S. believes the threats are. Um, for information purposes, but also to see if, in fact, if there are a country if happens to be mentioned, <laughs> they have a particular interest in that in that reference, uh, it, wherever it appears in the actual document. And depending on how they perceive that, they may or may not do certain things domestically themselves mm-hmm. in response. So, um, but they, but it, so, and it's also not just the words that you said; it's the tone. And so, they may, when they finish reading the document, they may walk away with what is this saying overall about how the U.S. feels its role is in the world, how it wants to, how it wants to deal with what it believes the threats are in the world, how it wants to allocate its resources based on those threats. So it's a signal, but it's also a concrete document that other countries can look at to say this is what the U.S. is saying mm-hmm. about uh, how it wants to address the threats that exist and how it wants the military to deal with it, how it wants diplomacy to deal with it. Um, and so it's a very important document that mm-hmm. they want that they will look at and take seriously in light of the fact that they also look at other things that are going on. Right. So let's let's jump into, you know, what the thing says. Uh, We're not obviously going to go through all 68 pages in the segment that we are in the time that we have. But um, again, for our listeners, if you we're going to take this back to like grade school where the teacher would say class, take out your books and turn to page. Um, But uh, if you have the national security strategy handy, um, there are four parts to to the national security strategy um, that is outlined in here. Uh, the first part um, talks about protecting the American people. The second is promoting American prosperity. Preserving peace through strength is the third. And the fourth is advancing America's influence. Um, and again, we don't have time to go through all of them. So what I, I did was I just picked um, different uh, segments from each one of these um, pillars, if you will, of the national security strategy. And uh, Bonnie, since you're, you know, an expert in weapons of mass destruction, and you're also pretty well aware or um, experienced in the military modernization and just how the military functions, let's start with that. Let's let's start with with the with some of the um, juiciness around military modernization. So on page 28 of the document. It reads that the United States must retain overmatch. Overmatch strengthens our diplomacy and it permits us to shape the international environment to protect our interests. To retain military overmatch, the United States must restore our ability to produce innovative capabilities, restore the readiness of our forces for major war, 
and grow the size of the force so that it is capable of operating at a sufficient scale and for ample duration to win across a range of scenarios. We must convince adversaries that we can and will defeat them, not punish them if they attack the United States. That, that's um, when we talk about tone. And we talk about how other countries perceive this again. Um, when I when I was reading this, certain songs came to mind, and and they weren't you know you know Phil Collins type of songs, or these were these. I was thinking of some songs that make you want to fight somebody. Uh, so Ambassador Jenkins, um, this this section talks about a lot. Um, about advancing our military, investing in our military, preparing the, 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 the future of American jobs with investing in the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, you know, is it accurate to say that modernizing and expanding our defense capabilities, while it's concerning, um, is this also, do you think, an economic opportunity for Americans? Um and, and, you know, any other observations you have about this section are, are welcome as well. Well, first of all, you can certainly, just very basically, if you're, if you're talking about modernizing equipment, modernizing technology, which I think we do need to modernize some of our military equipment. I don't think that's a question. Whether, but you do that for this because you need to modernize the equipment. And that's the important thing. Now, by Not doing, because you want to start a war. Oh, certainly not because you want to start a war. You always want to be prepared um, for any incident that can happen, and you want to have the best equipment that you can have possible. And we've seen the problems with the Navy and the, and the ships with the Navy that were having problems with recently, so we know that there needs to be modernization of the military. And there's been um, some concern with a lot of military that the equipment needs to be updated. So I think that's important. Um, and, of course, if you have uh, manufacturing of uh, these uh, the modernization of equipment and technology that can, of course, create more more jobs. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say you should do it just to create more jobs, <laughs> right. but um, I think that it's accurate to say that you can reinvigorate manufacturing sector when you produce um, uh, when you produce or modernize your weapon. So I think that's just that that makes sense. Though, of course, as I said, you got to re- think about why you're doing what. The question about overmatch um, is is an interesting one. Mainly because it, it's difficult to understand what what your what what it is you're trying to overmatch. It's interesting mm-hmm. to say we want to over want to we want to overmatch or be much better and deal with every situation uh, it, that comes at us, and, and that sounds great. And I, I think everyone would like to say we will always be prepared and be able to be sure that we can. Uh, not just match, but do much better than that in terms of uh, threats that are coming at us. But we have to also be realistic. Um, now, it's, it's great to set the goal. I have no problem with that. But it's, it's it, you have to deal with the fact that you, we have to modernize the equipment first. Um, and what are we overmatching uh, against? And I think that we cannot necessarily anticipate all of the threats that will come to us in the future. So we can do what we can to be prepared um, but um, I don't know if we can necessarily say we can always be we can always overmatch because um, that takes us knowing exactly what all the threats may be and being able to always overcome every single threat. And I'm not sure that we can do that. And also financially, I'm not sure that we can do that at a time that we're cutting taxes and we're trying to modernize. It's a lot to try to do in order, in all, and then say we're going to try to deal with every single threat and also to overmatch every single threat. One of the things I observed when I was doing the research around this was um, the numbers behind America's um, spending on defense. And um, the, the Peterson Foundation um, cites that uh, America already has spent more on its defense than China, South Africa, Russia, the UK, India, France, and Japan combined. That's, that was uh, the 2017 numbers of defense expenditures, expenditures was to $611 billion. And um, in the back of my mind, and I think that it was like more than 50% of our, our budget is is dedicated to, to defense. And so in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, you know, what more do we need um, if we've already, you know, surpassed, you know, some pretty major players already, um, uh, two of which are we, we we deem adversaries, China and Russia. Uh, so I I wonder, you know, 
that's a lot of money. Or am I just, you know, the I can hear a realist right now saying, you can, you know, it's never too much. Um, but am I, is that feeling accurate? I mean, I think there's two ways of looking at it. I think there's definitely things that can be done to look at what's being spent to make sure it's being spent in the right way. I think there's certainly um, things that we could be doing in terms of looking at the budget to make sure that what the, the large amount of money that's being spent is being spent in a way that it's actually achieving the results we want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the U.S. has a lot more uh, global reach and trying to do a lot more than a lot of uh, countries. So you need to look at the when you look at the numbers, you got to break it down and see exactly what it is the money being spent mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So when you have the military involved in so many uh, parts of the world trying to do so many things, uh, it's important to get a sense of what other countries are trying to do and accomplish and what the U.S. is trying to do and accomplish. And mm-hmm. the obligations that the U.S. has, for example, in Afghanistan and other countries around the world, that can help to explain why there's so much more money that we're being, that's being spent here versus other countries. But I will, and I will say that, uh, as I mentioned first, that there's definitely room to make sure that we are spending money in the best way possible, mm-hmm. you know, and making sure we do an accounting of the money that's being spent. There's a lot that the military is doing that's not just um, the actual battlefield right. work. There's right. other things that they're doing. So we need to, when you look at the state, look at those numbers, you need to break it down, both in terms of are we spending the money the way we should be spending it and looking at all the different things that DOD is doing. Right, right. So I think if somebody wanted to take this on as a project, they could look at the DOD budget <laughs> online and, and figure out where that $611 billion is, is mm-hmm. going. Um, and sort of related to protecting you know, our military and certainly our shores, um, a couple of things I want to touch on. One is your experience um, with North Korea. You recently wrote an article um, about America's diplomatic um, approach or lack thereof uh, uh, with with North Korea, considering um, that they, you know, they have nuclear weapons or say they have nuclear weapons. And um, you also have experience, again, working with weapons of mass destruction. And I want to read again, if you have it in front of you, if you slide over to page eight, um, the, the quote from the document says, at our borders and within our territory, we will bolster efforts to deter nuclear, chemical, radiological and biological agents and keep them from being used against us. We will also better integrate intelligence, law enforcement and emergency management operations to ensure that frontline defenders have the right information and capabilities to respond to weapons of mass destruction threats from state and non-state actors. So um, Ambassador Jenkins, tell us about North Korea and your thoughts on what you think um, America's um position will be going forward in 2018, considering what's been outlined in the national security strategy. Um, in all fairness to our listeners, we haven't talked about North Korea yet. We won't go down that rabbit hole. It's very easy to do so. Um, but Bonnie, just tell us you know, your thoughts on America's posture with North Korea. And if you think this national security strategy you know, helps us or hurts us um, in that posturing. Um, I'll answer this in three separate, three separate parts because there, there are three things to look at. Um, one is the issue of weapons of mass destruction. The statement on page eight, which references strengthening our borders and our territory to bolster efforts to detect um, nuclear, chemical, radiological, bio, biological agents, uh, that is um, that is a uh, that statement really reflects work that has been going on in the U.S. government for a number of years to prevent WMD terrorism, to prevent WMD uh, rep, uh, proliferation, and to promote disarmament. There's a number of activities um, that we do um, to ensure that we keep uh, the U.S. safe from uh, non-state actors. Uh, using weapons of mass destruction. A lot of it actually is not just within our borders, but it's also working uh, overseas because this is a global issue trying to deal with, you know, um, ensuring that non-state actors do not use weapons of mass destruction or bring them into the U.S. is um, and is, is important part of protecting the U.S. itself. So, And, and real quick, um, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some internal terms here. Uh, can you just explain what a non-state actor is? Versus a state actor. Yeah, a state actor would be, uh, a state actor is North Korea, uh, is Iran, is the U.S. They're a recognized country. Recognized country, whereas non-state actors are, you think of uh, Osama bin Laden, 
Uh, that's a non-state actor. And Al-Qaeda. Uh, and Al-Qaeda. So when we're talking about non-state actors, we're, taking, we're talking about actors who are obviously not the state, but we, when we say it, we're also referring to reflecting people who are who want to do harm. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, necessarily, we don't necessarily say that, but it's usually non-state actors with intent to do right. harm. And the way in which we deal with uh, preventing weapons of mass destruction use and uh, promoting nonproliferation is different from when we have a state or a non-state actor. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the work that I did at State Department in preventing WMD terrorism was really focusing on the non-state actor. We were talking about North Korea and efforts we're trying to, um, to you know, uh, convince them to you know get rid of their nuclear weapons um, or to denuclearize those are state actors so you know we there's there's limits to both and yeah. what you can do because yeah. of the because of the recipient um and it's interesting and this is my own personal view it's interesting we're talking about non-state actors you know the u.s has its own issues of how we deal with uh domestic terrorism mm-hmm. um and how we try to prevent act- actions um by people in the u.s who we probably wouldn't mind calling them terrorists if they were outside the U.S. or from particular countries. <laughs> right. Uh, Which so is a whole other show. It's a whole other show. Yeah. But if we're going to be preventing things, we've got to prevent it because it's bad, not because of the person or or, or whatever, they're, where they're coming from. And I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I was reading back to the Obama administration's um, national security strategy, the last one um, from, I think it was 2015, I think. And first of all, the tone is completely different. It's what's it's much more kumbaya (laughs) than than this thing here, uh, than this national security strategy. But what's interesting um, for me, it it was exactly what you just said, which is in it, it actually mentions the fact that the United States recognizes that we have internal issues uh, that we need to deal with uh, related to bias, related to injustice, related to um, discrimination, um, related to the distrust of government and law enforcement, et cetera. So there was a very um, clear, oh, I would say transparent um, presentation of the national security strategy, like saying, hey, look, we're putting this out there. These are our positions about our engagement in the world. But rest assured, America, this is also about you, that we recognize that at home we have some serious things uh, that we need to, to deal with. And you don't see that in this document. What you see in this document, in my opinion, is a glazing over of some very real issues that I think are interconnected, um, but some very real issues that we have at home when it comes to violence um, and discrimination and all of the other things that we hear about in the news. And we're seeing the results of that. Yes. We're seeing the results of of a long history of not dealing with some of the issues that are very uh, that are actually a part of our culture. Yeah, you know, which is racism and discrimination, uh, which has obviously been, you know, we've, you know, since we were started years ago, you know, we've had these issues and we've always had a problem dealing with them. We've always had a problem talking about them. Right. Um, and they don't go away. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Not talking about them doesn't mean they don't go away. So you know, we don't deal with the fact that we have our own homegrown terrorism. Right. Um, you know, we're just glazing over the fact that no, it's not just something that's overseas; it's something that's here, right. and we're we're missing the missing the point by necessarily targeting certain groups or certain people from certain countries and saying that you know you know you are the you you are probably the terrorist or you are the terrorist, and focusing on them and not really looking at the other things that can come to bite us as well. Like, yeah, exactly. And I think you bring up another good point, which is. What and we were talking about how other countries look at this this as well, but when you read the national security strategy, you have to think about what's not in here. Exactly. You know? I mean, there's there's I mean, it's not just what's in here. It's what are they not talking about? That also means it leaves you questioning. So, are you saying that something's a threat or not a threat? Um, I would, you know, when we're talking about tone, and I'll get back to North Korea, we're talking about tone. It not only is the tone. I mean, I finished reading it and I pretty much put it down and said, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, now what do, I, what do I do with this? Where do you run? <laughs> did you drink your glass of wine after that? I'm like, I I like, okay. Um, I mean, some of it's boilerplate language that you see in other right. others. But there are things that are obviously said there were just like, a, like I was saying earlier that are just not reflective of the way things really are, not reflective of the U.S. government and our attitude. Um, you know, for example, there was one point where we made the case that, 
you know, um, I think they were referencing China. Maybe not. They're saying if you don't take the if you don't take the leadership role, it'll be lost. Mm-hmm. But that's what we're doing in so many right. ways. Right. And we're 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 stepping back from U.S. leadership in so many issues, whether it's climate change or anything else. Um, and and but at, at the same time, the document says, you know, it, that's a problem. Right. Going talking about North Korea, which is a historical thing that we have done, is at this, and I point this out in my blog. At the same time that we're criticizing North Korea for their desire to want to hold on to nuclear weapons, we have a reference in the document how saying how important nuclear weapons are to us. So you know we have to at least acknowledge right. <laughs> that you know we may be giving a separate message, and when we look at other countries and what they do, you have to at least say that hello, maybe maybe we are not preaching as much of what we say should be done. Mm-hmm. And particularly, with, unfortunately, with this administration, which there's a point in here where we talk about American values and, you know, and how we're exporting. And, 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 like, but how we, the freedom of the press, you know, I mean, I mean didn't, wasn't that always important to us? <laughs> <laughs> I don't yes. know. Yes. <laughs> it's only in that one little thing called our, uh, what is it called? Oh, our Constitution, yes. right? It's in so that I, one little so, document. I mean, so there's part of it that I, I put it down and I said, I don't know what to do with this. But anyway, going back <laughs> to North Korea, um, there was not enough, obviously, I think, emphasis on diplomacy. And um, not enough space given for that as an option. And I know that diplomacy is difficult with North Korea. I am not saying it's going to be easy at all. Um, But the fact that there was so much, I think, a lot of attention on the military side. Mm -hmm. I understand why um, people feel we need to do that. Because nuclear bombs are real. A nuclear bombs are real, but at the same time, you want to have a conversation with those countries that have them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't yeah. want to, you know, you have to recognize that, you know, it's better to have a dialogue with people than to, you know, get in a position where there could be a preemptive right. response. Uh, what I what I talked about was this meeting that's going to take place in Canada, I think it's January 16th, and it's going to be called with the Vancouver Group. It's like a number of countries who were part of the UN command um, during the Korean War. Um, and it's also going to include Korea, South Korea and Japan. Um, Sweden, India. So it's going to be an opportunity for countries to finding ways that they can increase pressure on North Korea, but they really want to pressure North Korea to get to the table, to sit around the table. Um, and, and, you know, so it's trying to think, having these countries come together to think about how they can try to make that happen. And this is Canadian-led? It's U.S. and Canada. It's okay. a joint meeting that's going to that's going to be taking place. So, um, not to say that you know the issue with issues with North Korea is going to be is still not going to be a difficult thing to to deal with, but at least we, there's options and people are thinking let's think outside the box. Right. Let's try to figure out if there's other ways that we can approach this, other avenues, other ways in which we can try to make something happen. Um, having North and South Korea. Talking in the last couple of days has been positive about the with the Olympics. I think is a right. good thing. I think that has to continue. Right. I'm not going to say that everything is great because they're talking about going to Olympics and everything. There's, but it's a first step. It's a first step. So that's that's good. Let's see what we can um, do to continue those discussions and get to um, other issues as well. Mm-hmm. You know, in a lot of times you have to start with things that are not necessarily the most difficult. Maybe you know the North Korean nuclear program is the issue of discussion, but that's something that they're not going to just give up their weapons tomorrow. Right, it's not, it's right. not going to happen, and neither would we. And so. I wouldn't. Well, I was going to say I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect we would if North Korea put out a national security strategy like ours. Let's talk about what we're doing. Um, you know, before we we transition here uh, to the end, but you, there's a section in there about diplomacy um, and quote unquote. Um, competitive diplomacy, which was a new phrase that I had never heard of before. And I was like, what is that? But um, again and again throughout this document, one thing that is consistent is the idea that our our diplomatic um, efforts, our ability to just have a conversation and build relationships with other countries um, should be backed by a strong military, a military that is equipped, prepared, innovated, financed, just grr, just great. And so we can't do good diplomacy un- unless we have this, um, the, the military. But, you know, I think it's fair if you've been following anything in the news about the State Department. Um, it's clear that we have um, some issues because we have a lot of people leaving. We have diplomats, the people who are going to sit across the table from North Korea, from, you know, uh, Sweden, from the UK, from China, Russia, 
they're leaving. And so that's a problem. <laughs> it's, it is a problem. I can go on for about three hours on the State <laughs> Department. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think this whole, I mean, the concept of, you know, you, can, you, you have to have all of that to actually have a conversation. I don't, necessarily, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't think you necessarily need that to have a diplomacy with, with countries. Um, so, but you know, but you know, it, it, a lot of a lot of what you're seeing is is in, in in the document is a reflection of what's happening in the State Department and and the perception of the role of diplomacy um, in foreign policy, which I which I think many would agree has has really um, been harmed a lot in this administration and the number of people who are leaving, the morale uh, at the building. Uh, it, it's a reflection of um, not being seen as important, particularly in areas where that's why you have a State Department, <laughs> is to uh, have these kind of conversations To and the fact that people have not been appointed uh, to positions, uh, they have not been nominated to positions. There's so many political appointee positions that are open uh, that have it's it's really a, it's really not a great situation. Yeah. So we'll you have know. to just see what happens in 2018 and beyond to ramp up staffing, if at all. Well, it'll t- I mean, if people keep leaving, uh, you it's losing expertise. Yeah. Which is not always. It takes while a while for people to get to level of expertise, yeah. of uh, reflective by the people who are leaving. Yeah. yeah. And that won't happen overnight. And so that's why somebody some of the losses are going to take a while to fix. And not yeah. that we can't fix that, but, you know, it, it, it's it's unfortunate that we're losing the kind of expertise that we have and the professionalism that we have at the Department of State. Yeah, yeah. So I think, if anything, that's one reason to read the document, um, even if you are like me, like, what in the world is going on? But if anything, it gives you a sense of um, the reality um, that's happening on the ground and how it conflicts with, conflicts with what's actually in the document. I think it's important to read it because I think it's just good to uh, get a sense of what the U.S. government is saying about what we feel the threats are, how we want to deal with them, how we feel we should be structured to do it. Um, you know, what do, we, what do we say about some of the other countries mm-hmm. out there? What do we say about uh, the role of the Department of State? Uh, other particular issues. They reference all kinds. Of, I mean, it talks about all kinds of things like cybersecurity. Other things. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of references of things in the document. So, it's 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 important to read it. I mean, it's not that long if it means ten pages a day. You know? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know, if you want to do it um, with your think, with your preferred strong beverage. Exactly. You don't have to have a marker and and, and highlight every exactly. section unless you want to, and that's fine too. But I think it's good to get a sense of that because, like I said, then other documents flow from that. Yeah. And it'll help inform a person about why other countries may be taking some of the positions that yes, they're taking. Yes, And it may go back to this document. Yeah, I also think people should read it because if you're at all someone who doesn't understand why America um, is doing what it does, it actually, it, even given all of its aggressive tone, it actually does a decent job at connecting dots right mm-hmm. so if you talk about if you're interested in education and getting our youth educated I mean it doesn't say early childhood education or you know higher ed. it doesn't say any of that soft and fuzzy language like in the Obama uh, <laughs> national security strategy but it does talk about STEM and the importance of the STEM field if you're a business person and you're you know manufacturing wires in I don't know I've been picking on Montana a lot in this show. Let's pick another state, Tennessee. Um, If you're in Tennessee uh, and, you know, you've got a small business um, and you're thinking about areas of growth, I think that there are some areas um, that connect, you know, economic issues and um, domestic issues uh, to, to the global environment. So even if you look at it from that lens, you know, you'll learn something about why we're doing or why engagement abroad is important because it actually does impact some of the things that we do here at home. So that's that's my compelling reason. Do you have any other compelling reasons? besides? No, it's, just, it's, just, it's just good to be educated. It's good to know. It's good to be aware. Um, and like I said, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, there it, there are things that it's said in terms of what the U.S. government should be doing. And, you know, 
and it may be something that later on you want to say, well, like, you know, U.S. government said that this was important and mm. that was important. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's contradicting what they're what they're actually doing. But it's good to have that document to go back to. Yeah. And highlight and said, well, obviously this is not true. And you said this is true. Yeah. It's not true. And accountability. You know, accountability. So um, I have started an initiative on social media called uh, hashtag read the NSS 2018. Um, and I've been putting out tweets every day of the week up until the State of the Union address. Uh just some quotes uh, from the actual document, um, some of them which I've read here and some issues we've talked about on the show. But I encourage you to check out the hashtag. Again, it's read the NSS 2018 um, on Twitter and on Facebook um, where I'm just picking out some sections and would love to hear your thoughts about the section. Um, if you're reading it as closely as we are, you know, if you find something else that's interesting, feel free to tweet um, what in the world at WITW pod. Um, so so that concludes our conversation about the national security strategy. I hope you all are feeling um, excited, <laughs> not depressed, excited about reading what's in it because it's very interesting stuff. And if you got more time, go back and read Obama's, go back and read Bush's, go back and read Reagan's, go back and read first Bush's. They're all very interesting. That's if you've got all that time on your hands. Some of you don't. Uh, but uh, in true fashion on the show, we like to end on a high note, a positive note, because this is some like real heavy stuff dealing with weapons of mass destruction and bombs and nuclear weapons. And, ugh, it's a lot. So I ask every guest to tell us a song that keeps them in a good mood. And Bonnie, what was yours? My song is What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. It is a wonderful. I love that song. Why? And, it, and it's and it's it's. First of all, I think I just think Louis Armstrong was great. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, when I first heard that song, I was I just like, oh, this is this is beautiful. It's a beautiful song. The way he sounds, um, and he's saying it's it's a you know, it's a wonderful world. So despite everything that's happening, we have to just understand, um, you know, how 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 blessed we are to be here. That we need to keep the environment, keep it as as healthy as we can possibly make it for the next generation. And that's everything from dealing with climate change to dealing with wildlife to dealing with, you know, biodiversity issues to dealing with each resources other. and each other <laughs> and, and try to keep the world beautiful because yeah. that's the idea. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's a wonderful world. So I agree. I agree. I agree. Thank you all for listening. Remember, you can catch um, other shows like What in the World at WERA.FM. Um, and you can find this episode as well as other episodes on Mixcloud.com slash What in the World podcast or on Facebook again, as I mentioned, and on Twitter. Um, you can email me. Uh, it's the start of the new year. Um, I want to hear back from you on what topics or issues you've been hearing about in the news that you want to learn more about. So you can email Email me at whatintheworldpod2017 at gmail.com. Until next time, uh, when we talk about more great things that are happening in the world. Bonnie, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Enjoy it. Thank you all. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself